Getting there. Hey, good morning, Grace Point. It's good to see y'all here. Uh, Hey, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Brandon. I am the Director of Music and Liturgy here at Grace Point Church, and I just want to say thank you again so much for, for joining us today. It really is so important that we be gathering week in and week out and, and worshiping Jesus together. And so really thank you for, for being here with us today. Uh, before I get started, I do have a couple announcements for you all. The first being that Holy Week already is really quickly approaching. And with that comes getting to celebrate Good Friday and Easter together. And I'm super excited about that. I don't know about y'all. And so I want to give you some information about those gathering times. So our Good Friday gathering is going to be on April 15th uh, at 6.30 p.m. We're just going to have one of those Good Friday gatherings. Easter Sunday is going to be basically just like a normal Sunday, so 9, 11, and 6 p.m. on April 17th. So your normal gathering times, whenever you normally come, you're more than welcome to gather with us for Easter then. Speaking of Easter, we're also going to be hosting baptism classes on April 3rd. That's two Sundays from today. That's going to be at 9 a.m. here at the church. And that's because we're going to be baptizing people, God willing, on Easter Sunday. And it's going to be a huge celebration. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Uh, And so if you're interested in getting baptized, if you're interested in in knowing what it means and why we do it, uh, we're going to have a class here for you to take. All you have to do is go online to our website, sign up there, and you'll be all good to go for April 3rd at 9 a.m. Sound good? Cool. Well, that's all, that's all I've got for today in terms of announcements. So let's hop into our message today on Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, where Jesus is going through his Beatitudes, and he says that the meek are blessed because they're going to inherit the earth. Now, if you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say that you are going to need one because we lead, preach, and teach from the Bible, especially during this season, as we've been doing and will continue to do through the season of Lent, as I'm going through the verses and and the scriptures in the message. There's only going to be references up there unless it's a quotation outside of the Bible, Uh, and that's to encourage everyone to, to really be in our Bibles together and read these things and tackle these things together. And so if you don't have one and you want a physical one, we've got copies in English and in Spanish on those tables here at the front. You can just come up and grab one. That's our gift to you. You can take that home. If you want a digital version, there are tons of free apps you can download. The ones we use, the one we use here is called Uversion. Uh, if you click on your profile there, go to events and then Grace Point Church, all of the sermon notes and quotes and, and everything you need to follow along is going to be in there for you as well. So now we can hop into Matthew chapter 5. I'll read the scripture again. Hopefully you're there. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All right, now, to begin, I, I want us to make sure that we're continuing on the same page together about what it is that, that Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes and what these Beatitudes would have been to Jesus' intended audience. It's really important for us always to try and put ourselves in the shoes of whoever Jesus or, or any of the biblical authors are directly addressing because it might have meant something different to them back then than it might be meaning to us now today, and it's important for us to take note of that. And so I want to give you a little image to see if if maybe we can try and put ourselves in their shoes. Now, have you ever seen a a movie that's just got you super gripped? Like you're you're totally intrigued, you're in it with the characters, you love the narrative, you want to see where this is all going to, and you cannot wait for that really climactic moment where everything's just going to come to a head, all the payoff is going to happen, and then right at that moment, they pull the rug out from under you and there's this big twist. Right? I, I personally really like a twist, but I know that it's a really high-risk, high-reward thing, because if it's done poorly, 
It can sour your view of, of the whole movie if it, if it uh, subverts your expectations in such a way that you leave that disappointed, then a movie that you might have thought was good up until then, you might leave that theater hating it because of that twist. But if it's done well, oh, I, I feel like they can be so satisfying because it, it, it takes something that you thought you knew, something that you thought you wanted, and it just seamlessly replaces it with something that you didn't know but now know that you needed out of this movie. A, a good twist should leave you feeling like if like you would have this movie go no other way than the way that you've just seen it go, even though you didn't expect it coming at all. Now, I, I think it's tough for us to, to really grasp how shocking these Beatitudes would have been to them, but that's kind of the position that they find themselves in. Because like Pastor Ty told us a couple weeks ago, Beatitudes, they're this really common communication device. Even, even today, he showed us that we still throw around some Beatitudes. Well, in the days of Jesus, in his time, they were all the more common. Uh, using them as a teaching device was really common to, to tell people what it meant like not only to be blessed, but to live in a certain way or to think certain things. And so lots of specifically Jewish scholars used Beatitudes as a means of teaching. And so I, I want to show you some Beatitudes from around the time of Jesus. This is from one of the most popular Jewish scholars and theologians of all time, maybe. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. His name, funnily enough, is also Jesus. Uh, his name is Jesus ben Sarah. He lived about 100 to 150 years before the time of Jesus. And these are in his collected works called The Wisdom of ben Sarah. There's a list of Beatitudes here. And I want to show you these just so that you can know what would have been forming the imagination of the listeners of Jesus, what they would have thought of when they hear blessed are. This is the common conception of what it means to be blessed. You'll see it on the screen. It says, there are nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. Blessed is the man who can rejoice in his children. Blessed is the man who loves to see the downfall of his foes. Blessed is the one who does not sin with the tongue. Blessed is the one who doesn't serve an inferior. Blessed is the one who finds a friend. Blessed is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. Greatest is the one who finds wisdom, and none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Now, you, you might hear some of those and think, yeah, okay, that kind of sounds like Bible, right? B blessed is the one who, who has wisdom, of course, or, or blessed is the one who doesn't sin with the tongue or fears the Lord. All of those things sound right, but if you, if you read those closely, there are a few in there that sound kind of odd, right? Sound, sound not really in line with what Jesus might have taught. Like, blessed are those who, who don't have to serve an inferior. What he's saying there is, is that you're, you're blessed and God is for you, and you know, as Pastor Ty said, the word can mean approved. You know that you're approved by God, when you never have to, to humble yourself and to lower yourself to serve someone of a, of a lower social or economic class than you, or, or you're so blessed only when you know that you are so popular and so well-liked and so adored that people are just waiting with bated breath and, and hanging on every word you say, that's how you know that God's with you? No, to us, obviously, those things don't sound like Jesus in retrospect because he, we, we know what he taught. But I say these things to you because this is what the people would have been thinking when they heard, blessed are. This was the common conception. This would have formed the imaginations of the people to know what it means to have a blessed life. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, blessed are these crowds. And, and, and by the way, we have to remember, who are these crowds? These are the poor, the broken, the, the both spiritually and physically oppressed the, the sick, the wounded, these are the people drawn to Jesus. Now they hear blessed are and they think, all right, 
Cool, you're going to tell us about the the healthy and the wealthy and the powerful and the wise and and how God is with them. And maybe you're going to give us some tips on on how to get there if we're lucky. And, And then, at that moment, Jesus hits them with a twist. This, this earth-shattering, mind-blowing twist uh, to, to everything that they would have thought or known to be called a blessing because Jesus in that moment says, no, you. I- I'm for you and with you. Not, not who the world thinks has got it all figured out. I'm for you right where you're at. Jesus says, in your brokenness, in your poverty, in your oppression, in your doubt, because of me, because of my love for you, you, you aren't cast out of my presence, but rather you're welcomed in as a citizen of God's kingdom with open arms. Try, try, just try and grasp how shocking this would have been to them. These are people who've been told nothing their whole lives by their culture and by their community and by their society, that they're nothing but, but worthless, unable to contribute, unworthy of love, let alone God's love. Not with God, but rather that probably more likely than not your condition or your ailment is a result of God's punishment on you for some sin you must have committed. They hear nothing but this, even sometimes from their own families for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And then this man named Jesus comes along and he says, no, that's not it at all. I I love you. And, and you're precisely who I have come for. That, that's the context that these Beatitudes find themselves in. They are absolutely revolutionary to the people whom Jesus was referring to. And so now, now that we've got a, a little bit of context for the verse, and, and still for these Beatitudes, who's listening and, and how shocked they would have been, we can, we can maybe start to talk about meekness itself. But, but before I continue, before I start to break it down, define what it is that meekness is and, and how this characteristic can be applied to our lives or, or whatever, uh, I, I really want to take a pause because as soon as I start to do that, I don't know about you, but I am, am all too quick to, with, with something like a list of good things to turn it into a to-do list to really quickly be like, all right, I got to do this, I got to do that, and, and this is how God's going to love me, to be like, oh, I, I wasn't poor in spirit this week, so I better go, go find a way to be poor in spirit, or I didn't mourn enough, I better go look for things to mourn, or oh, I, I'm not being meek right now, I, I, I better change right now and, and just try and be meek because that, that's how God's going to love me. And that really, al- although those might be pious pursuits, it, it really is not the point at all of what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Bible commentator Stanley Hauerwas, he puts it this way, you'll see it on the screen. He says, too often these characteristics have, in Christian history, been turned into ideals or virtues we must strive to attain. When we do that, we turn them into formulas that help us gain status and favor with God, which is, of course, precisely the opposite of what Jesus is trying to say. These are for those with no status, with no desire or ability or capability to grasp at any sort of power. So first and foremost, when we read these Beatitudes, we must see them not as things to do to be accepted by God, but as descriptions of the type of people who have already been accepted and welcomed by God, invited into this way of living in his kingdom right here and right now. Not a to-do, but a description of who you are in Christ. See, because this this whole section of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5, where we are now, all the way through chapter 7, 
they all make up this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been in church long enough, you've probably heard of it. It's one of Jesus' most famous collection of teachings, and it's all about the kingdom of heaven and the ethics of the kingdom of heaven, how people are going to behave and, and what they're going to do. But if you notice, the, these Beatitudes, they kind of stand out. They're right at the beginning, and to me, they serve almost as a, as a foundation for what he would go on to teach about what we are to do. See, I'm sure you've heard it said in, in modern times, we've, we've heard this a lot, I'm sure, that we are human beings, not human doings. Well, Jesus follows this line of thought because at the beginning of his sermon, when he wants to give you the thing that you need to carry in to the rest of the teaching, he doesn't give us a list of things to do, but rather he tells us who we are as welcomed citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as, as he has brought it near right now. And it's upon that definition of what it means to live in the kingdom that Jesus then lays forth his teaching. I, I want to show you how this works a little bit. If you're in Matthew 5 still, look forward in the same chapter at verse 28. This is, um, I'm going to point out a couple, just a couple of his teachings in this sermon. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So that's one. If you look a little more ahead at verse 38, he says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And finally, one more, five verses ahead at, at uh, verse 43, another teaching of his. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those persecute you. And so looking back at, at these beatitudes, if, if we consider them foundational to his teaching, we know that these ethics, these, these to-dos that Jesus is giving here for, for living in the kingdom of God, they are impossible without a state of being that is required to perform them. That is, what I'm, what I'm saying is that what Jesus calls us to do is not primary, but rather who we are is primary in seeing these kingdom ethics brought forth into our everyday lives. The, these to-dos, the loving your neighbor, the loving your enemy, the not looking with lust, these things are impossible without the foundation of the Beatitudes because the Beatitudes are what defines a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. See, if we look at it that way, then we can carry it into the teaching and say, well, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, they're, they're not going to look upon another human being with lustful intent. Or, or oh, it's, it's the meek who would turn the other cheek in the face of persecution. Or, or it's those who are poor in spirit. Only one who is poor in spirit would have the capability to not only love their neighbor, but to love their enemy. The, the Beatitudes are almost like the, the animating spirit of the teaching of Jesus. It, it's what allows us to do these things, and without them, we cannot. It's why he defines us in this way first, and then goes on to say, in light of who you are, this is what you do. Now, I'm, I'm really trying to hammer home here the idea that th these Beatitudes, if there is a to-do list in the Sermon on the Mount, this is not it, right? E each individual Beatitude, what it is more like, is like a, a small piece of glass in, in a stained glass portrait. Have, have you ever seen a, a stained glass portrait like in a, in a big cathedral? A lot of these, they're, they're gorgeous. They're made up of, of painted or stained glass, and you put them all together, and, and when they're all together, they form this beautiful portrait. I, I see the Beatitudes as being a lot like this, where every single Beatitude is like this individual piece of stained glass, and you add one on top of the other, and when you're all done with the list, it forms this image, a portrait, 
And the image that all of these Beatitudes form is that of a, of a perfect citizen of the kingdom of God. And, and who is that? Jesus, yeah. And, and so if, if you put all these Beatitudes together, what we should first be seeing is a picture of Jesus. This was actually the, the inspiration for our logos for this ser- these series. If you see back here, uh, you see this Jesus carrying his cross, this Jesus hung, crowned on a cross, and, and the exalted Jesus after he's risen. But the whole point of these is, is that each beatitude is like each individual little piece, and they all make up this picture. But what's important to note is that all three of these, whether carrying his cross or hung and dying or risen from the grave, they are the same Jesus. The, the, the meek and the merciful and the humble and the poor in spirit, Jesus, all three of those are the same. And so when these people are, are, are hearing about the kingdom, the, this kingdom language, he's going to bring a new kingdom to rule here on earth, they'd say, okay, you're bringing a kingdom. That sounds great, but I don't know if you've heard Jesus. There's, there's this Roman Empire. Uh, I don't know if you've seen them, but they're quite powerful. And, and I'm just wondering, where, where's your military at? Where, where's your aggressive overthrow? Is this it? Just you and these 12 dudes? Because uh, I, don't, I don't think we're going to get much done here. And, and Jesus says, yes, the, the kingdom of heaven has, in fact, come near. But that's not how it's going to come near. See, the, the way that Jesus says it comes near is in this portrait of the citizen of the kingdom of God. It's this portrait of Jesus. And, and for us, as followers of Jesus... These pieces of the portrait, these blessings, they describe who we have been made and not who we must strive to be by his grace, by his love, and by his death for us. What Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes is not blessed are those who who strive to attain these traits. He's saying blessed are those who are so close to me so, so welcomed into my home, so near my presence, that my mercy, my humility, my meekness are, are theirs now. Th- those are those who are blessed, Jesus is saying. And so now, now that we've established that it's, it's not a to-do list, right, we can now start to talk a little more about meekness and, and what this facet of our citizenship means. Because meekness is, is a, a little bit of a Bible word, right? It's not a word that we're used to using. We don't go around calling people meek every day. And so because of that, I, I want to make sure that we can have this very practical, broken down definition for us today of what it means to be meek. And today I'm going to form it out of, of four scriptures, two in the New Testament and two in the Old Testament, that describe some really important figures in the Bible, as you'll see, some very key members of the kingdom of God. But first, I, I want to get across what meekness is not. Because since meekness can be a bit of a vague term to us today, We can misdefine it, we can apply some things to it that just don't fit, and they they kind of mar what Jesus means when he's saying that blessed are the meek. And so first off, meekness is not passivity. Meekness is not failing to do something out of of fear of the world or standing back in the face of injustice in order to to keep some false sense of peace. No, that that is not what meekness is. Those things are, are sin. Those things are are a failure to bear the image and the authority that God has given us as his image bearers. So meekness is not passivity. It it is not a a false sense of piety for not doing anything or not speaking up when it needs to be done. Meekness is also not strength under control. 
Now, I, that might sound kind of specific if you've never heard it, but if you've been chur- around church long enough, I'm sure someone, when talking about meekness, has thrown out this definition to you because it is all over the place. A lot of Bible commentaries, a lot of books will define meekness as strength under control. But I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that there's really no ancient manuscript evidence or, or no extra biblical sources or, or anything, really, that implies that the defini- definition of meekness has anything to do with, with strength at all. I, I honestly think that's people not being able to wrap their heads around how beautiful this trait of meekness is, and, and we have to read into it our own conceptions of, of power and of strength because it really has nothing to do with it. So for, I'm, I'm going to show you what I mean when we look at this Greek word for meek. It's praus. Everyone want to try and say that with me? Greek word, praus. Yeah? Cool. This, this is the word for meek. And so first we're going to see it in Matthew 21. So if you want to flip there, I'll give you a second. About 16 chapters ahead. And this is when Jesus, he's actually quoting a, a prophecy from the book of Zechariah. It's an Old Testament book of prophecy. And he's talking about the king who was going to come to install his kingdom and what he was going to look like. Cool. Hopefully y'all are there. It says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, Jesus is saying, he's quoting, it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so here that, that word praus, that Greek word, where we get meek in our beatitude, here it's translated humble. And so from that we can get our first part of the definition, you'll see it on the screen, that to be meek is to be humble. There, there's a really close relationship there. That is to be open, not closed off to correction. That is to be willing to place ourselves underneath the interests and the needs of others before our own. Not to be boastful, but to be humble. And so to be meek is to be humble. That's part one. Now the other place in the gospel where we're going to go to pull our definition of meekness from is 10 chapters backwards in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verse 29 and actually Christy already mentioned it today in her liturgy. This is where Jesus is making this key statement about who he is as, as a human being, as a person. The thing that defines Jesus most, he says it right here. Matthew 11, verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now here it's the word gentle. When Jesus says he's gentle and lowly in heart, that word for gentle is our word meek. We could translate that as I am meek and lowly in heart. And so in this statement, what we see is that those who are gentle, what Jesus is saying about being gentle, is that they're a blessing to others, is they're a a light that provides God's rest. They're, They're people who don't bring or invite conflict. They don't create unnecessary tension. They don't induce stress. But Jesus says that a gentle heart will bring you rest. And as Christy pointed out wonderfully earlier, this is a, a vital part of who Jesus says that he is. And, and by that end, a vital part of what makes a citizen of the kingdom of God, what makes a follower of Jesus, is meekness. Author and, and theologian Dane Ortland, he says this beautiful in his, beautifully in his book right on this topic. He says, Gentle and lowly, this, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is, tender, open, welcoming, 
accommodating, understanding, willing. If we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. And for for the purposes of our text today, we would be honoring Jesus to say meek and lowly are the things that define Jesus. And so part two of our threefold definition here of being meek is that to be meek is to be gentle. And so we see that humility and gentleness associated with meekness. Now, this one last key part about what it means to be meek, we're going to find it in the Old Testament in two texts. So I'll give you some time to get there. The first one is in Numbers chapter 12. So that one's going to be near the beginning of your Bibles, sandwiched in between Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's within the first five books of it. And uh, contrary to what many people think, no, it is not just numbers and lists, uh, although it is majority numbers and lists, so it makes it kind of hard to get through. Uh, But I promise there are some really good stories in there. You should read it for yourself. Uh, One of those is is something that we're going to look at right now. We'll also be in the Psalms afterwards, but for now we'll, we'll stick here in Numbers chapter 12. And in this chapter, hopefully you've gotten there, we find a a really important account of or a description of someone practicing this meekness, of what an interaction with people can look like when someone is meek. And so as we arrive in in Numbers chapter 12, we're we're right in the middle of a story. And so I want to give us a little context. Moses, here's the main character of the story. I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, He, at this point in the story, has already crossed the Red Sea. He's led his people out of Egypt. He has followed God faithfully. He has led people through the wilderness, received the Ten Commandments. Moses, at this point, has been and, and continues to be the closest person to God in his community. God has revealed himself in a way to Moses that he has not done to anyone else. And this is very clear through the story. And so his, his second in commands is Aaron, his brother, and, and this woman, Miriam. They start to get a little jealous because they've been working hard as well. They've been speaking to God in certain ways. They've been teaching the people as well. They've kind of been helping Moses, but they feel like they aren't getting the same amount of credit or notoriety. And so they get a little envious. They get a little angry at Moses and they want to discredit him. So they start looking for some dirt. They, they, they want to see if there's a way that they can discredit him, not only before his community, the Israelites, but before God himself. And so they pick out this thing in his, his life, uh, that he married this Cushite woman. And, and all that they're getting at there is that he married a non-ethnic, uh, or an, a person that was not an ethnic Israelite. And they definitely hated that. They assumed that his community would hate that, and they also assumed that God would hate that. And so they felt very confident in bringing this charge against Moses, knowing or thinking that they, they were right to do so. And so that's where we find ourselves in this story. They bring this charge, this accusation against Moses that he's married a Cushite woman, and, and, and they want to see what God's going to do about that because, because Moses must need to be punished. And so read with me here in verse 1. It says, Miriam and and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Now pause real quick. Did you notice that little sidebar there? Where, where the, the, narrator is, the narrator, he's mid-story, and then basically, out of nowhere, where he could go on, he's just like, hey, real quick, you need to know this before we move on. Moses is incredibly meek. How you read the rest of the story, you, you need to be looking through the lenses of the fact that this man, Moses, he is super meek. Now, he continues. Suddenly, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, 
Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord comes down in a pillar of cloud and, and, and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And at this point, they might be thinking, oh, oh okay, God's going to come talk to us now. Like, we probably did the right thing. Like, he's going to come say, yeah, you're right. Like, this guy Moses, he sucks now. No, that, that's actually not what is about to happen. They should be terrified because when they come forward, he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, or I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So he comes down and he really lays out Moses' whole resume. Everything about his beloved servant that he knows to be true, he lays it before Aaron and Miriam. And he says, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So this made God angry. That's a pretty intense exchange, and all of this because Aaron and Miriam brought this charge against a man who we are very intentionally told was, was the meekest of them all in a very poetic way. Now, did you notice, though, speaking of, of that meek man who didn't speak at all in this whole interaction, Moses, yeah, that's right. Moses, the the very person being accused and attacked, he didn't say a word this whole time. But rather, the Lord heard, and the Lord came, and the Lord defended his own. God came and spoke on his behalf, putting to, to shame any and all accusations against his beloved. And so why the mention of Moses' meekness before this? Well, because I, I think this story is trying to tell us something really pivotal, pivotal about what it means to be meek. And it's developed in this psalm that we're going to go to. So flip with me now to Psalm 37. That will be more towards the, the middle of your Bibles. And we'll be in verses 7 through 11. And I think that Moses is just perfectly embodying this psalm. And that's why I'm kind of trying to marry these two together. Now this, this text, Psalm 37, verses 7 through 11, it's actually what most scholars believe Jesus is pulling from with this beatitude. Either he's alluding to it, inferring it, implying it, or just straight up quoting it. But at the bare minimum, we can know that this psalm and these verses have a lot to do with what Jesus uh, thinks of when he thinks of the word meek. And I think that the story we just read shows Moses embodying it perfectly. So hopefully you've gotten there. Psalm 37, verses 7 through 11 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Now Moses, he, he, Moses is still. He, Moses waits for the Lord. Moses does not have to say a word because he knows God is for him. Moses exemplifies this psalm perfectly in this instance. So to put it shortly, our, our third and, and last kind of part of, of the definition for what it means to be meek here, based on the scriptures, is that to be meek is to know that God fights for you. What I mean here is that a, a meek person is someone who knows and is confident in that God will come to his or her defense because he has before. He has proven himself. God is faithful. 
and this person knows that. Someone who knows deep in their bones that, that they don't have to fight back, that they don't have to desperately defend themselves and respond to every and all accusations from enemies because God has already done so and will do so. But, but that's, that's not us, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we often don't refrain from anger. We don't turn from wrath. We don't keep from fretting, even though the scriptures tell us it only leads to evil. Because we, we feel this, this need to be so, so self-sufficient, to, to fight for ourselves, to defend ourselves, to, to think that, man, I, I only have myself, I can only trust myself, and I got to go out there, I got to take what's mine, and I got to defend myself from, from any attack, because I, I know me best, I can defend me best, only I know what I've been through. It's very individualistic, and that's what leads us to, the, to this anger, to this need to respond to everything that comes against us. Not, not, to, not to trust that the Lord is, is going to provide what he has for us in his time, that we don't need to go strive and take it for ourselves. And so, so what would it look like then to, to be meek? What does it look like to put on meekness as Christians, to, to not strive after it as we've been talking about, but to simply receive the gift that Jesus has given us in his presence, in these beatitudes, that, that he calls us meek? Well, maybe that looks like receiving your, your spouse's or, or your parents' or, or your children's criticism or, or anger even and not responding aggressively back, not responding with your own anger or with your own hurt pride, but in that moment counting their need to be heard and seen and cared for is more important than your own need to be vindicated. Maybe it looks like instead of bringing critique or instead of bringing criticism to a loved one or someone close to you or, or an employee or a coworker at work, instead of doing that, maybe you bring a word of encouragement, a, a word that allows someone to, to rest from, from their stress and their posturing and their worry, all the things that they might feel like they need to do with the world, you can make them feel like they don't need to do that with you. You can give them a moment of rest. Maybe that's what being meek looks like for us. Maybe it, it radically changes, as all of Jesus' teaching so long to do, maybe it radically changes all of our conceptions of what power looks like. Maybe meekness looks like for all of us Christians, specifically in our context in this country, not grasping for political power or influence by force. Not, not going above and beyond to, to take the kingdom by force as if God was not doing it himself. By, by making and drawing harsh lines and distinctions going around, hey, saying, hey, hey, you're in, you're out, God loves you, God doesn't love you. That's, that's not the meekness of Jesus. That is not what his victory is characterized by. Jesus' victory, his true winning in this world looks like a dead man on a cross. That's what Jesus' victory looks like, and that is his most meek act. See, Jesus won, and he didn't have to throw a, a single punch. He, he didn't need to get into a single politician's pocket. He didn't have to rise to the highest seat of earthly power. No, J Jesus won by dying, by trusting that the Father would raise him, by following this course of meekness to his grave. And so when we think of meek and what that looks like, we must look at the cross and not, not be scared of it, not see it as a worldly loss, but to see it as gain as Paul tells us, to, to look upon the cross as victory, as the Bible tells us it is. And so then we have meekness. We have these three parts of meekness, to be humble, to be gentle, and to know that God fights for you. 
But there's still a whole other half to this verse, right? And, and it's, the, it's the reward for this meekness. It's, it's the blessing for this meekness. It's the crown placed upon the head of who God has welcomed. And the crown for the meek is that they will inherit the earth. Some translations you saw in Psalm 37, it also translates it as the land. And I think that's a little more accurate because it's not talking about the the globe as we conceive of it, the whole earth. But more often than not in the Bible, that word is talking about a specific set of land. It's It's a very practical and material thing. And so to them, inheriting land would have been a a very positive and good thing, an inherently good thing that you would want to do because even now, uh, owning your own land would have meant that you would have been able to provide for yourself. You could have grown your own crops, you could have made your own clothes, you could have fed your family with what you've made and not had to rely on other people. You could have even sold those crops or clothing or whatever in the market. You could have made money and sustained yourself by this land. So owning land was a really good thing and, and not many people got to do it. It's also very important to note, though, that a very common way of of acquiring land was by force, by by conquest, by murder, by pillaging. That is, by counting yourself as more worthy than another to have the comfort and the stability of your own land, by then bringing and inviting conflict to it, and then taking it for yourself by force. Now, Now, what does that sound like? Precisely the opposite of what we've been talking about, precisely the opposite of what it means to be meek. And so, church, what I think is being said here is that that is not how it works in God's economy. That, that it's actually, it's the meek, those who are humble, who don't count themselves as, as more worthy or important than others, who are gentle, who bring rest, those who know that they don't need to take these things by force, those are the ones, unlike what the world thinks, those are the ones we're going to receive the blessing of peace and security, and, and those are the ones who are going to be sustained. They're going to receive the blessing of land. Now, there is a sense in this blessing that, that is for us here and now. There's also in what's called an eschatological sense or, or a future sense, something for the, the end times per se. And that's what the now part is that God wants us to, to receive this gift of meekness the gift that we have in Christ to be like Jesus in his meekness and to share that gift with others. But this meekness only is a sort of down payment that we, as we bear the marks of Christians, as we bear the marks of following Jesus faithfully, as we bear our identity as meek citizens of his kingdom, that we would have full assurance that there will come a time when Jesus returns and fully restores his creation and his kingdom to himself that, that we will no longer need, that we will no longer be wanting for land or, or, or peace or stability or security, that Jesus' perfect victory on our behalf, his perfect reign forever and ever will silence every doubt, every worry or feeling of desperation, any need for vindication that we might have, that when Jesus restores all creation, the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall receive peace and prosperity, and they will be sustained. They will not worry. They will not need because Jesus will provide for them. That is the promise to those in God's kingdom who bear the mark of meekness in Jesus. See, when we are humble, when we're gentle, when we're patient, when we receive rebuke, 
when we welcome it, when we bring rest to those around us, when we don't fight for our own way, but we trust in God to protect us, to provide for our needs in, in the face of a world that, that asserts its own way, that domineers and that, that abuses to get ahead, that sees conflict as the way to victory and that sees self-sufficiency as the God of this age. When we can be meek in the face of this world, that is how we see God's kingdom come one follower of Jesus at a time. That's how that prayer gets fulfilled. He's inviting us to actively participate in the coming of his kingdom and the ways in which we do that are not by aggression or by force or by war power. It is by meekness, poverty in spirit, humility, mercy. That is how we see the kingdom of heaven come. Each, each one of us, we can be little lights, little outposts of God's kingdom, showing people what it looks like to live in a world that truly flourishes. That, that's what it means to be meek. Now, as, as we have been and will continue to do this season of Lent, uh, I, I want us to take now an extended period of, of silence, to, to sit, to, to reflect upon, to meditate upon what Jesus is showing us about himself through this beatitude and, and, and what he's showing us about his kingdom, what he's showing us about who he has made us to live in it. I'd say that right now you, you ask him to, to reveal himself to you, to, to just come before him and talk to him. Ask, maybe ask him some questions about what this means or, or simply just sit before him in wonder at the beautiful picture that he has painted of what it looks like to live with him and like him. And so I'll close our time in prayer. And then we'll go to the table together, but for now, let's just sit together in a moment of silence.